Hi, friends. Welcome to the latest episode of The Gradient Podcast, where we interview various people who research, build, or use AI, including academics, engineers, artists, entrepreneurs, and more. I am your host, Daniel Bashir. Today's guest is truly one of the greats. I am very excited to share this interview with Professor Yoshua Bengio. If you're in the AI space, then Yoshua Bengio hardly needs an introduction, but here is one anyway. He is a full professor at the University de Montreal, as well as founder and scientific director of both the Myla Quebec AI Institute and the Avado Institute. Best known for his work in pioneering deep learning, Professor Bengio was one of three awardees of the 2018 A.M. Turing Award, along with Geoffrey Hinton and Jan LeCun. He is also the awardee of the prestigious Kilam Prize, and as of this year, the computer scientist with the highest H-index in the world. This was an expansive episode. I think there was almost too much that I wanted to speak to Professor Bengio about, and I think the episode will certainly betray that I was a little bit nervous talking to a researcher of such high stature. Nevertheless, I found this to be a really valuable and interesting conversation. Professor Bengio is a very thoughtful and admirable human being. I appreciate his patience with the flurry of questions I had spanning most of his career, and I hope you find the conversation interesting. And with all that, let's move on to the episode. So without further ado, Joshua Bengio. Professor Bengio, you have told your story of getting into deep learning a number of times, I think. And so I, in formulating this particular question, there's one thing I'd love for you to focus on. And in particular, you've mentioned the influence of the PDP group, for instance, and Geoffrey Hinton on your early thinking. I'd love for you to linger on and, and expand on that a little bit in terms of your driving into the, the deep learning realm. Yeah, uh, I, I, it was kind of a revelation when I read the PDP book. And actually, it's, it's a book. There are two, uh, two tomes, and uh, they're both worth uh, rereading uh, almost uh, 30 years later. And um, yeah, it, it, I didn't, I didn't, I was, I wasn't sure what I would do for my grad studies, and so it was a turning point. And uh, there, these two tomes actually, one has more of a sort of computer science flavor, or like more of a um, AI flavor, if you want, and the other is more psychological and cog sci flavor, and neuroscience flavor. And uh, you know, for me. Uh, that was important too. I, I didn't know anything about neuroscience before reading that stuff, but it, it gave me really a strong, I realized, you know, I cared about understanding how our brain works and how come we are intelligent beyond the, you know, nicety of being able to build more intelligent machines. Um, so it's an emotional thing. I, I think when I was younger, I was always asking myself about, 
you know, what is intelligence? And uh, I, I didn't realize that we could actually study it scientifically because well, I, I didn't know much biology. I was a computer scientist. Um, and, and in retrospect, it turns out that this way of paying attention to the biology of intelligence has guided a lot of my work throughout all the past decades and continues to do. My current work is very driven by trying to fit what I what I you know see as uh, the teachings from what we know about brains. Mm -hmm. And uh, by the way, there, there is there is like a, a an argument why this is important that is uh, a little bit abstract and technical for AI. Um, one way to think about this is the the space of possible algorithms that we could design for AI is just huge. I mean, the space of algorithms is is, is is huge, anyways. And and what we're doing as scientists in AI is searching that space and you know seeing what works and maybe using our you know math and, uh, and, and and other tools to to help in that process. But when we bring in the knowledge about how animal and human intelligence works to the extent that we have some knowledge um, it reduces that search base considerably and so i think it's one of the reasons why i've been so successful in my research because i kind of forced myself into trying to be consistent with some of the things i knew from biology mm. yeah it, it does seem like biology and a lot of ideas for example i suppose the way children learn and acquire language and all of that do often get invoked as guiding principles and I guess not just the construction and looking through the search space, but then also evaluating how are we actually doing in terms of measuring the performance of the systems we're building. Yeah. At the same time, I need to say that, uh, you know, a lot of neuroscientists may think that my work and the work of other people like Jeff Hinton doesn't uh, qualify as uh, really strongly constrained by biology and they're right because and we use the word inspired by biology because uh it's it's much better if we understand what we're doing so if we just copy details that are in brains but we don't understand why they would make sense usually we go nowhere so so uh, uh, it's more an inspiration, but we try to make sense of, you know, why that inspiration, what a particular aspect of biology could be important. Mm. That makes a lot of sense. One thing I'm, I'm curious about in particular, too, is since you had mentioned not exactly being sure what you wanted to do in your PhD and PDB being more or less an inspiration for you, was there, was that moment at all a shift in terms of what you thought the foundations of AI should look like? Or did you feel like that encounter just articulated something that might have already been in your head? I think the the, the mental construction of you know, what we need for AI and so on is something that came slowly with maturation and years and years after I decided to go this way. So I guess I just followed my intuition initially without having a strong like argument in my head. Um, but it built up over the years, thanks to also discussing with lots of my peers, of course. Right, right. So 
following this this encounter throughout your PhD, your thesis, you worked on artificial neural networks and applying them to sequence recognition. And you were on the paper with Jan LeCun, uh, gradient-based learning applied to document recognition. Right, right. Could you tell me a little bit about working with LeCun? I understand that you did a postdoc with him and Larry Jackal at AT&T Bell Labs, and then this paper came out after that. That's right. That's right. So when I arrived at Bell Labs, um, I met an amazing group of researchers, um, um, including folks like uh, Leon Boutou, for example. Um, I met uh, Bernard Shokoff, uh, who's now working uh, with me, um, you know, I mean, along similar lines. I, he inspired me on things, uh, causality these days. Uh, Vladimir Vapnik, um, uh, Isabel Guyon, uh, Jan, of course, um, and, 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 and several others. Um, and Jan is, is an incredibly smart and intuitive person. Mm. And he's much calmer than I am. <laughs> I'm kind of, uh, uh, maybe more of a sort of excited, enthusiastic person. And uh, he's more laid back. Um, so we we had lots of discussions, and uh, I learned a lot from him and the group. Also, he was he uh, he started playing more of a managerial role, and and um, he was very good at that. So he continued in that direction later, um, and that taught me as well uh, something that served when I became myself faculty and had a group of students. Um, uh, he gave us, uh, uh, and Larry as well, Larry Jackal, they both gave me a lot of freedom. This is something that I, I do with my students. And it, you have to let go a little bit, right? Because there's a temptation to, oh, you do this, you do that. But but really, you know, these grad students, they come with their own uh, spirit. and um, and And the way I try to present it is, well, Let's talk about things that are of mutual interest that we both find interesting. Um, so, so there is freedom, but we also want to have a discussion where both parties are interested. So, uh, yeah. So he, he he helped me build a sense of how one could have a group of researchers that are not just individuals but working together towards common goals, but also where each person has its own mind and its own views. And, you know, we, we had in this group people working on kernel machines and people working on neural nets, which a few years later were kind of a bit of a, an opposition, let's say. Uh, but, you know, it went really well uh, at that time. That, that strikes me as something like a collective social intelligence, right? Presumably a bunch of people are in the same lab because they have some shared sense of goals or some broad research program they'd like to achieve. But the different people in that group are, of course, going to have very different ideas, perhaps, about how to actually go about that. And then it's like, yes, we share this high, broad set of interests. But then as an advisor, you want to make sure that people have that ability to explore their different thoughts and how to actually get there. Yes. You have to realize that scientific research is an exploration. And as such, as we learn when we do machine learning, like in reinforcement learning, um, 
it is necessary to um, uh, take risks and to explore many paths. And, and that's what the scientific community does. You have different people and they all think, you know, they know better where to go. And that's fine. That, that what, that's what allows us to uh, be efficient by, you know, uh, investing in many directions that, that are uh, promising. And we don't know ahead of time who's going to be right. That's, that's why we need that exploration in the first place. Yeah, that's certainly really valuable. And I suppose there's sometimes it feels like there's an incentive to notice, oh, this line of research is working really well and then double down the investment and everything like that. And that's good for the people working in that area. And I suppose those who are excited, but then not leaving enough room for that exploration certainly has a lot of drawbacks as well. The The next I guess, time period of your research that you uh, tend to focus on is uncovering the fundamental difficulty of learning and recurrent nets. And I thought that the learning long-term dependencies with gradient descent is difficult was a really interesting paper. I thought it was kind of a paradigmatic case of, I know that you talk about taking a sort of large research problem and sort of distilling it down into its fundamental components. And um, this was very much something that you did with this paper in terms of looking at the condition required to store bits of information. It's the result of banging my head on, on hard walls for a few years because I was working on recurrent nets and sometimes it really didn't work. And so I think the, the question people should ask themselves when, they, when things don't work is there's an opportunity. What's the problem? Let's try to understand Ask the why questions rather than just uh, let's let's make it work or let's make it beat the benchmark. Yeah, there's definitely um, an opportunity there to dig into what's the fundamental phenomenon happening here, as opposed to thinking of it in the framework of let's hack around this, I suppose, and and do the more leaderboard chasing style approach. Yes, um, and I think in machine learning in general. There's too much of the culture of let's just build a system that works really well and beats the other algorithms instead of let's try to understand. And so people don't spend a lot of time on negative results. One thing that's particular about this paper is it's essentially a negative result. Mm -hmm. It says there's a big problem with recurrent nets and, and the wider class of learning machines. And what is the problem? So, you know, really digging into fundamentally what is going on and doing experiments whose purpose was not to compare algorithm A with algorithm B, but really answer the questions of, you know, is, you know, what's the hypothesis of can we test it? And the nice thing is when you do that, you can reduce the problem. You don't have to have a big system that takes forever to train. We can reduce it. In our case, we reduce it to like single recurrent neuron. That was enough to really understand what was going on. And of course, then you want to make sure that the, the theory generalizes, which we did by talking about dynamical systems and tractors and things like that. That was one of the things I really liked about this paper. I know that when I was first introduced to the idea of recurrent neural nets and saw the comparisons between those and LSTMs and things like that, I was given this high level idea, you might get things like vanishing gradient problems when you look over long time spans, but there 
wasn't much deeper than that. And when I went through this paper, I thought that the articulation in terms of attractors and looking at characterizing whether dynamics are attractive or not with the spectral radius was um, really interesting and I think gave a good sort of deeper lens into what's actually going on under the hood. Yeah. In retrospect, I think it was one of my best papers. <laughs> it didn't get as much, you know, publicity as others, but but I think it was a very important piece of uh, contribution. You have mentioned in at least one interview that you feel people don't understand this work well enough. And do you think it's that, that dynamical systems articulation of it? Or could you tell me a little bit yeah. more about that feeling? Yeah, exactly. Just uh, what you the story you told. So people understand you multiply a bunch of gradients together and it gets small. But uh, the, the, and, and by the way, that idea um, uh, had been put before our work. And I didn't know about it because it was in a German master thesis. Um, uh, uh, by um sorry what's his name um uh, anyways um but the attractor thing is something people have trouble with because it's not something we learn in typically in computer science and uh it's a really important notion in mathematics and it turns out to be important in my current work thinking about how the brain does things um so uh, I, I think this is something that would be worth teaching more as well, like these, these notions of dynamics and attractors to, to understand neural nets and their capabilities. Certainly. It was definitely not something that I was taught as a part of my CS program, and it definitely took me a little bit to come to grips with what was going on there. But I did feel like that was a very nice and helpful way of, of articulating what was going on. I, I can definitely agree that it would be nice to have that more in traditional CS programs. The The next stage of your work I'd love to talk about is looking at word embeddings from neural networks and neural language models. There is a lot of important work here, and a lot of it has to do with trying to bypass the, the curse of dimensionality, and you articulate this in a neural probabilistic language model, um, you introduce word embeddings as part of a neural network that models language data, and then also introduced um, this idea of asynchronous SGD. Could you tell me just a little bit about what your experience was like working on the paper at the time and sort of figuring out this cursor dimensionality issue? So the curse of dimensionality idea is something that actually arose just a couple of years before in work I did with my brother. There's like a Benju and Benju paper on how neural nets can potentially bypass the curse of dimensionality that occurs in learning joint distribution over discrete variables. So that was not language, but think about discrete data, you know, which at that time was mostly modeled by tables, you know, counts, frequencies. And of course that blows, you know, that doesn't scale if you have many variables. That's the curse of dimensionality here. Um, and we had a paper that showed um, I think even in Europe, uh, that if you use a neural net to learn conditional distributions uh, to decompose the joint, um, and that there is a structure that a neural net can capture, then you, you, you're not suffering from the curse of dimensionality. And, um, and then the, the uh, language model paper was kind of an application of this, but where we introduced, well, introduced an idea that actually came from Jeff Hinton, 
that words should be represented or symbols. I mean, he was thinking about symbols. Symbols should be represented by vectors. Um, that was already like part of his uh, mantra in the late 80s uh, in his paper on distributed representations. Um, and then applying these ideas in the context of uh, language modeling, um, showing that, uh, you know, uh, uh, not just numerically, but showing like intuitively why we can bypass the curse of dimensionality. It's because words have shared attributes and meaning so that cat and dog can co can, can replace each other in a sentence because there is a sort of uh, semantic representation that maybe that's hidden to us and that's actually present in our brain uh, in which they share a lot of attributes because they're pets, right? Uh, common pets. Um, and uh, and that allows, if you, if you understand this and you see how now we don't need to see all the possible sequences of words in order to generalize. You can take advantage of that similarity between words. And that's the first order thing. And then you can have more complicated nonlinearities. That's where the neural net part comes in. That makes a lot of sense. One thing that stuck out to me in this paper, you had some interesting suggestions for future work. And one of these was introducing a priori knowledge that was to say semantic information um, like low and high level grammatical information, coupling the model to a stochastic grammar, things like yes. that. Yes. And I guess today, the, the way NLP seems to have gone, not not so much into introducing yeah. a priori knowledge, but I'm curious how you look back at those words now. Well, I'm working on things currently that go in that direction. Right. Uh, maybe we didn't have the tools to handle efficiently and in a, in a rich way the kind of latent structure that, say, a parse or a semantic parse, which is really what we care about, uh, could be discovered by uh, neural nets and could be represented in, in a way that exploits the uh, sparse dependencies that exist at that level. So when you look at the word level, you basically need to look at all the previous words to produce predict the next word. So you need a lot of data. You need, that's why we need like huge data sets to train, huge corpora to train these large language models. But if, if you can represent things at a more abstract level, thinking about the relationships between words that, that uh, take meaning together, like subject, verb, object of particular kinds, um, you, don't, you don't need as much data because the relationships are simpler. They involve fewer concepts. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of my recent work on trying to uh, bring in high-level cognition into neural nets um, is, uh, is motivated by this idea that we can put in more inductive biases, more structure that will reduce the simple complexity of, of language models, but potentially, you know, more like, and be able to do things like reasoning better. I, I do think one of those perennial questions is always what is the right granularity of the inductive prior to to introduce to the system? And I, I do want to dive into your thoughts on these uh, priors from higher level cognition. But first, I'd love to take a little bit of a tour through the rise of deep learning era. Could you tell me a bit about your your experience of that period, what that was like for you? So, so there are different phases. So there's this phase where 
I'm feeling that the field is moving away from neural nets. My students are, you know, want to work on kernel machines and, and stuff like that. And and uh, and that's the time when I write the language neural language model paper. Um, and so a lot of what I did in these early years of uh, like the deep learning era is trying to understand what neural nets could bring that was missing in other approaches. So this cursive dimensionality question, I, I worked a lot on the cursive dimensionality. So um, is there an issue with uh, lots of the kernel methods or the graphical models that were based on tables uh, that were popular in those days? Um, so it was more like trying to save the the, the neural nets uh, because people seem to have thrown the, the baby with the bathwater. Uh, and I thought there was something important we were missing though. And so that's, that's one aspect. And then um, really a big uh, player then was Jeff Hinton. You know, he came up with the RBM, the restricted Boltzmann machine. And, um, and discussions with him shifted my view about unsupervised learning. So I used to be, uh, so with the, the paper with Jan McCann, for example, on, on document recognition, I was fully into the supervised end-to-end -end learning mantra. Um, and, um, and, and, and these discussions with Jeff really helped me understand the importance of unsupervised representation learning. And by the way, in the first decade of deep learning, say let's uh, say until 2015, roughly, people didn't pay much attention to unsupervised learning. Um, in fact, it's only since the transformer era that uh, the you know majority of uh, researchers in machine learning realized how useful unsupervised learning was because this is you know the the unsupervised pre-training, which was introduced in those early years with the uh, layers stacks of RBMs and stacks of autoencoders and then the denoising autoencoder. And by the way, the denoising autoencoder was, uh, is, this, is behind, which is essentially due to uh, Pascal Vincent, who was my student and then became a faculty, uh, uh, is, is behind the, 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 is the main recipe behind the unsupervised representation learning we find in, in modern language, uh, language learning uh, Model, uh, sorry, and uh, with the masking, the masking uh, idea and and reconstruction ideas. Um, so so yeah, so unsupervised learning became big for me, and it still is. Uh, but it was a big shift for me, and um, and 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 I continue in that direction, and you know, sort of my modern undertakings, because humans get very little actual supervision. We get feedback, we get, sometimes people will say, oh, this is a cat, but <laughs> you usually don't, you don't get that. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is kind of amazing just the way in which human children are able to pick up on things like the, the complex structure of language, for instance. And it does seem like there's very little actual direction in how that occurs. So it does seem... A little bit of a mystery, at least, what's going on in the human brain there. But there, um, I guess, there are a lot of interesting ideas right now. There's a thing I want to come back to, which is uh, the uh, how um, coarse or how general the inductive biases that we choose should be. 
And, uh, you know, different people obviously have different views on this. And I have shifted myself. I used to be the sort of, oh, tabula rasa. Like, we don't want any inductive bias. But that was wrong. Um, and, uh, and I started realizing it at that period, thinking about the, you know, the convolutional architecture. For example, I worked a lot with Jan and we worked on convnets in the 90s. Um, but then even the notion of these district representation is, is introducing some inductive bias, which was missing in the standard statistical methods that only relied on uh, smoothness, for example, which is another inductive bias. So I started realizing the importance of that. Now, there are people who want to go much further and say, okay, we want to solve this problem so we can take all the knowledge we have and like try to put it in, in our machine learning system. And that could be very useful. Um, but there's an advantage of trying, of trying to go for the most general inductive bias that you can that's also as powerful as possible. So there's like a trade-off. Because if it's, if it's fairly general, like, you know, these days I think a lot about the sparsity of dependencies in high-level concepts that we manipulate verbally. If it's fairly general like this, it can apply to many, many areas. So, so then it's sort of more powerful. Um, but if, you know, if you're, I don't know, a, a biologist and you want to use machine learning to understand how cells work, it would be crazy not to try to use the knowledge we have already. Right. I, I suppose there's definitely a very application-dependent thought yeah, there. And, and also the other factor, which I think Jan was talking a lot about, is we have to be careful with inductive biases. Sometimes we think we know how it should be, but, but we are wrong. And so we introduce constraints that are wrong. And then we are better off without these constraints, but you know, just collecting more data. Which and that recipe has worked incredibly well, of course, in, in applications where we have lots of data. We just, you know, have very few inductive biases. Uh, we have very general machines, lots of data, and we're able to learn really complicated things. Whereas the tradition in, in AI and machine learning before was quite the other extreme, where we say, well, we try to handcraft everything. Uh, in fact, where you know, at the limit, there is no learning at all. Right. I guess, of course, there's sort of the well-known, um, the well-known learning theory that you have to have some kind of bias yes, in place. To but it doesn't tell you how much. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, if if only we had more sort of quantitative ideas on this, I I'd love to move on towards the next section of things here, sort of coming out of that. AlexNet moment decade and looking more towards today, what you're thinking about in terms of challenges towards AGI. In response to this question about whether your views have evolved since GPT-3 and the scaling hypothesis, you said you feel you A, have a much clearer view of how to achieve these goals, but also that you have adopted a Bayesian posture. Could you linger a little bit on your your Bayesian posture? Sure. Um there's a moment where it became clear. I was having a discussion with uh, um, some physicists who are using machine learning. And they, they told me something like, well, it's, it's not good enough for us to have one theory that emerges from our like, learning system to explain the data we have. Because maybe there are other theories that are equally valid to explain the data and 
Yeah. So, it, you know, and that's the Bayesian posture, essentially. The Bayesian posture says we're not going to be satisfied with having the one, one solution that fits the data. And of course, our priors or constraints and so on. Uh, ideally, we want to have all of them. And the reason this is important, and again, going back to like the sci- use of machine learning in science, uh, imagine I, you know, I come up with a theory of uh, uh, you know, some aspect of physics. Um, and there's actually another theory that gives very different predictions, at least in some questions of interest to me. I really need to know that because if I'm going to base my decision on the first theory, well, knowing that it could be completely wrong because there's other theory, which is equally possible as an explanation, uh, I might like, you know, risk people's lives. So it's a question of safety. It's a question of doing the right thing. And that means it's a question of knowing the limits of your knowledge. Like, you know, there are questions for which we just don't have enough information and we need to quantify that. So people, you know, in the, in the Bayesian well, we'll talk about uncertainty, um, epistemic uncertainty in particular. So the epistemic uncertainty is the, uh, the part of our like making errors of uh, not knowing that is due to uh, the fact that we don't have enough knowledge. Epistemic, that's like knowledge. Right. So this is different from the uh, our inability to make predictions due to like noise, things that are fundamentally unpredictable. Um, um, so epistemic uncertainty could, could be reduced if you saw more data and then more of the right experiments. And we need to capture that. And, and that's not just important for science, but you know, if you build self-driving cars, uh, you need to know that the car isn't sure whether you should go left or right because maybe somebody's going to die if you don't do the right thing. And you need, you need to wake up the driver or, or brake or you know, do some conservative action. There's there's a lot in what you just said, and one thing I'd love to hone in on a little bit is perhaps the safety and epistemic uncertainty. Perhaps we could even get into the idea of epistemic humility aspects of this. Um, yes, you've said in um, a few a few papers recently. Uh, this is kind of getting into the consciousness part, which I'd love to delve into a little bit more later, but you've wanted to move from deep statistical models. And I know you're no longer exactly articulating this as system two, but at least in the paper I'm quoting, you said you want to move from these models able to perform system one tasks to deep structural models able to perform system two tasks by taking advantage of the former model's computational workhorse. And this was interesting to me, at least as an articulation. Um, Also what you just said about safety and the Bayesian posture because when I spoke to Stuart Russell a few weeks ago, he had a lot of thoughts on both of these aspects. One, the sort of moving away from the old model of AI and sort of adopting um, systems that maintain this type of epistemic humility, but then also to the system one, system two models, at least the way you used to articulate this, this sort of convergence between the deep learning and the good old fashioned AI communities that he seems to have been predicting for a while. Right, right. So there's a lot of topics here. Um, the system two ideas or high level cognition, as I like to use that term now, um, it's quite important for, again, very pragmatic reasons, which is the ability to generalize in settings that are a bit different from your training distribution. 
and, the, and, I, and I said distribution, not necessarily data. In other words, things have changed. The world is a bit different. You are in a different place. Um, some agents have done things which really modify the, you know, the, the way things happen, um, what is the optimal thing to do, and so on. And currently, we the, the dominant way of doing things in machine learning um, uh, it, 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 we're not very good at that. Like uh, you train, even these neural nets uh, train on huge quantities of data, you, you kind of shift to a different distribution, maybe data from one country for training, and then you try it in a different country or something. Um, and, and you take a big hit or sometimes changes in the demographics or whatever. Um, but the interesting thing and the connection to higher level cognition is that humans are good, or at least better, than current state of the art at, at these changes. And I'm going to use this example I use all the time. You're, you've been used uh, driving on the right, say, in North America for many years. And then you, you rent a car in London, and you have to drive on the left. And if we were just relying on like system one deep learning, uh, it would take a lot of data of you know trying to drive in London and maybe killing a bunch of people or getting killed yourself uh, to 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 learn how to drive with this modified rule. But at the end of the day, it's just this one rule that changed. So what's going on with humans when we are in this situation? Um, you pay attention, right? So you're you can't just go by your habit, and there is something different mode of operation where you um, you remind yourself all the time, oh, I, I need to pay attention to the driving on the left uh, and, and, you know, and not just follow my impulse. So there's this aspect of uh, self-control where you just, you don't follow your impulse, you allow the kind of uh, reasoning and um, this, these modified rules or whatever it is that's uh, explaining the change to uh, influence your, your decisions. So maybe you're gonna be clumsy at the beginning, but at least you don't kill anyone and you don't kill yourself. And, and then you transfer that as you you know acquire a bit of experience driving on the left, you transfer that and eventually maybe after a few days or weeks, it might become a bit more of a habit. So this is a model for what we should do in, in deep learning. Uh, we, we should have these uh, systems that are able to Override the well-practiced, well-trained, uh, reflex, uh, not reflexive uh, way of prediction or taking decisions, and can bring in these pieces of knowledge, like this rule, um, uh, to to and reason about them. Um, now, you know, what does it mean to reason? You know. And, and uh, how do humans actually reason? So to understand these things, that connecting to the literature in, in cognitive science and cognitive neuroscience is, is really important. Um, so, uh, okay, so, so that's, that's why I think it, it, this matters to machine learning. And um, I also think that we can do it with neural nets. You have neural nets in, in your head, but with a somewhat different organization when it comes to these um, higher level cognition aspects. And, and we have 
we know a lot from neuroscience about how you know, it might be going on. There's a theory called the global workspace theory that is, exists since the 90s. And uh, that's been confirmed in many ways. It's kind of a dominant explanation for what's going on at the high level of cognition. Um, and a lot of my work has been trying to translate that into machine learning terms. What does it mean um, in terms of algorithms? And why would it be a good thing from the point of view of machine learning and sample complexity? So for example, one nice property of higher level cognition is that it's able to deal with um, dependencies between uh, high level concepts that are very sparse. And that's reflected in natural language. We see a sentence involves very few concepts and still contains lots of useful information. Um, another interesting aspect of the way we think consciously is uh, the whole causality aspect. And that's also important for the ability to generalize out of distribution. Because what is causality about? Well, there are many ways to discuss this and you know, take listen to hours and hours of lectures, but but here's my like one line summary. A causal model is different from a statistical model in that it's really a collection of, of uh, distributions. So a statistical model is a distribution that we can learn. A causal model is a family of distributions indexed by the interventions you can make in the system. So it contains the answer to, well, if I were to do this, how would that change the distribution? You would have a different distribution. So that's what I mean by index. Like if you tell me what interventions an agent could do, um, you might get a different distribution. And so the set of all these distributions corresponding to all the possible interventions, that's the causal model. And we and humans are good at that. I mean, they're not perfect. We make lots of causal errors, but, but we're pretty good. Um, and children in particular, there's a lot of interesting work um, about uh, uh, children, children development, uh, constructing causal understanding, for example, by Alison Gopnik. And, and that is, is uh, also a huge source of uh, inspiration. Okay, the Bayesian thing uh, is important here because there may be multiple causal explanations and if we don't keep track of that in some way, uh, again, we, we may fail catastrophically. Um, now, I've, I've, you know, I've never thought that you know, the Bayesian approach was bad, but I didn't really pay attention to it because I thought it was not tractable, that you know, we, we didn't have algorithms that could work and maybe there was not any. And I think that's the main reason most people uh, who have you know, good mathematical training um, kind of disregard the, the Bayesian ideas because, you know, on paper, it is the right thing to do, but you have these intractable quantities that come in. So, so the good news is I think we can deal with these intractable quantities. We can approximate them and we can use large neural nets to help us with that. And that's uh, something I'm working on. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited to get into these questions. One thing that stuck out to me in what you were articulating, this is maybe a loose connection of some of these ideas, was this very fascinating interaction between um, causal graphs and then the idea of attention. When we get introduced to that in machine learning, we have this um, very elegant mathematical idea of attention over the words in a sentence and that correspondence 
But then when we look at the way that humans pay attention, that can happen at so many levels of abstraction. I can pay attention to my left index finger. I can sort of expand that scope of attention to my entire body. And to tie that to causality, say I'm like practicing violin, I want to make my tone sound better. I can intervene on variables in that process, big and small, the vibrato in my fingers, the sort of length of my bow stroke and things like that. And kind of on the fly, figure out what does the causal graph roughly look like here um, and, and sort of learn a lot via that process. Yeah, um, there's a whole aspect of machine learning that we didn't talk about, which becomes really important when you start thinking about causality, and that is the action side of things. Because causality, as I defined it, has to do with interventions. Interventions are essentially actions. I mean, it can be actions. But it, 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 it's, it's, it's a good way to think about it. And, and so in the last few years, I delved quite a bit in reinforcement learning and started to publish in reinforcement learning. Um, and it's an area that's very popular in, in machine learning these days uh, for good reason. Um, and it, I think thinking about the action side as um, uh, something that uh, mediates these changes in distribution, which is what causality is about, is going to help not just train better agents in, in tasks where we traditionally would have reinforcement learning. But more generally, you know, even for like computer vision, we need that kind of robustness that, uh, you know, we humans have in terms of uh, uh, being able to deal with those uh, shift in distribution. Um, so, so it's funny, like, I, I feel like a lot of what I'm doing now brings in all these different threads uh, that, you know, I may have encountered to some extent in my career before, but I'm digging deeper into. So, you know, the Bayesian aspects, the causal aspects. Um, of course, the, the neural nets are still there. It's the workhorse, like the, the, the machinery that is going to make the, the is going to sample uh, what you think about. So that's where attention comes in. Um, because there are many variables that you could think about when you observe a scene and somehow our brain has this uh, internal policy. It's a kind of, you know, reinforcement learning, but not for acting outside, acting inside to control your computation. So attention is, is a kind of uh, computational policy. Where do I put my uh, you know, brain power right now? I want to focus on a few words, as you said, or focus on this object, this uh, entity outside that I'm seeing, or this memory, um, or this thought that I had, uh, you know, this morning. And, and that's kind of uh, uh, something where the traditional neural nets could be used as the, the machinery that, uh, you know, produces the, the probability distribution over the actions, which are where you pay attention to. Um, and so, yeah, attention is central to this whole story. And I think there's still a lot that we don't understand. When we introduce attention in our 2014 paper on machine translation, um, you know, that had a huge impact on, on machine translation and then natural language processing, we, we used what we call soft attention, where it's not really that we focus on one word. We actually focus on several ones with a, a mix, a convex combination. And that's very convenient because we can train with backprop, but it's not the way humans do it. 
you know, the negative cube is either one way or the other in your mind. And you, you have a thought which is about specific entities. It's not a mix of 10 different thoughts. So I, I do think that we've been using the word attention, but not quite the way that it's happening in the brain. Um, I, my hypothesis is that in the brain, the attention is more um, what, I, you know, what I call uh, stochastic heart attention. So in order to learn, you want the, the something that's uh, discrete, like you choose this or that, but not a mix of both, uh, to come with some probability uh, randomly so that you can get a training signal. Otherwise, there's no way to train, uh, at least in, you know, in a proper way. And, and so uh, it, it feels like there's a bit of randomness in, in, in the way our thoughts come. So I, I, you know, my hypothesis is that we use a stochastic heart attention mechanism at that high level of consciousness, at least that we can report. That's a that's a really interesting way of putting it. I I suppose at this point I'd love to segue over into your more recent work on GFlow nets, and you've spoken to some overlaps here, a lot of different ones because this is sort of combining many different ideas. But when I first read it, um, one thing that stuck out to me it felt. I guess I was reminded a little bit of the the distributional RL framework. And I know that you've spoken about overlaps between GFlow nets and various ways of doing RL. Could you tell me just a little bit about the the overlaps you've kind of thought about there? Yeah. So so you can think of GFlow nets as a particular RL approach where instead of trying to maximize return or rewards, in other words, to find sequences of actions that give you the largest possible value of some objective function, we're trying to sample trajectories, sequences of actions that uh, give rise to, uh, you know, end products like uh, states um, with a probability proportional to the reward you get to get there or when you get there. So th there are things that are related in RL, like, uh, Entrop maximum entropy approaches and uh, soft Q learning and things like this, but there are also some some differences. Um, and uh, this is interesting for a number of reasons. One is, well, it, it's it's sort of naturally more exploratory, uh, but but there are some some deeper things. Like if you want to be Bayesian, for example, this is exactly what you need. You you want to sample from the posterior distribution of something you care about, some actions or some beliefs or something condition on everything you've seen before, including all the data in your life. Okay, that's, that's, that's what you're trying to do um, in, in, in Bayesian uh, terms. And so you don't want to maximize something, like find the parameter that's most probable, but rather sample parameters in proportion to how likely to explain the data you've seen so that only the configurations of parameters or latent variables or something that are um, compatible with the data and your prior will be sampled. Um, right. So, so, so GFlow nets are particularly interesting as a if you want special RL methods for sampling from posterior distributions, and that comes up uh, in in the Bayesian sense if you want to condition on the data that you've seen before. It also comes up if you have latent variables. So the way I think about the high level concepts that we think about consciously is that they they are chosen 
by this stochastic heart attention. So there's like a, some randomness here and we want to choose them um, in, in a way that we can pick from the different interpretations that, that are compatible with what we've seen uh, and not just focus on the one. If everybody was thinking the same way, we wouldn't have science. So the, the, the exploration aspect here is, is very important. That's why we, one reason why, you know, the many of, I mean, the first paper on GFLONES and then several of the other ones were focused on active learning applications where you, you need to explore and you need to um, go and look at the multiple, say, candidate drugs that could work given the information you have and not just one that, that fits the you know, your reward function. Yeah, there's there's a lot to the overlap. Another another one that kind of stuck out to me and that I think you've spoken out about before was with evolutionary algorithms. And there's perhaps two things that I felt might be relevant and I kind of wanted to get your sense. There's a very interesting recent paper called Evolution Through Large Models that you might be aware of. And they had this really interesting initial step that sort of bootstrapped a language model and then eventually we're sort of doing RL at the end where they kind of bootstrapped um, the language model into having a set of like diverse samples of Python programs to iterate on via a method like MapElites. And it, it doesn't seem like that would be something needed in GFlowNets. It seems like there's, at least in cases like drug discovery, or I'm like adding a molecule to a you know collection of molecules, a set of actions is already pretty well-defined. But I am very curious if there's anything to the combination of this early bootstrapping method via an evolutionary algorithm and the extension of GFONETs to maybe a space where the actions are, are less well-defined. Okay, having less well-defined actions is very important. It's not. It's something I've been thinking about quite a bit, but we haven't really cracked that yet. And it's super important because this is more like what we do, it also corresponds to one of the big challenges of uh, reinforcement learning. You know, people like Doina Prekop studied in her thesis in uh, 1999, I think, uh, with options. And, and later, you know, uh, people call that hierarchical reinforcement learning. In other words, we want to be able to um, come up with and plan with abstract actions. Not, not the low level like muscle movements, but, oh, I, I'd like to have some tea. And uh, and I'll do what it you know I need to do that, and then I'll you know maybe have a discussion with my friend. So these are abstract goals, and you can plan at that level. They're like meta actions, if you want. And it, our brain makes them up. It's like they're not real. They're like in our mind. They're invented to help us better control the world, better understand it. Um, and there's nothing, you know, in the GFONET framework that says that the actions have to be something that you give meaning to ahead of time. So the math doesn't really prescribe that. Um, but but uh, yeah, this is something we are very interested in. And uh, one of the big challenges, we don't know how to solve this problem in RL. And it's clearly something people do. And, and that has been an inspiration for researchers for over 20 years. Um, and I'm hoping that these new techniques will help there as well. So I think I think this 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 can be combined with the ideas of system two, where there's this notion of uh, encapsulation and modularity. Like you know, knowledge should be broken down into smaller pieces that can be recombined. 
but these small pieces are abstract. They're 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 not like low level perception or action. Um, so so this is uh, this is all very related to the the higher level cognition and system two uh, thinking. Right. Yeah. It does seem like there's different levels of, I suppose, articulation and well-definedness, and it's it's really tricky to to get our arms around that. There's another overlap here also with evolutionary algorithms where as a future work you suggested investigating how to combine this generative approach with local optimization to refine generated samples while keeping the batch of candidates diverse. And that sounded a lot to me like this idea in evolutionary algorithms of novelty search with local competition. And so I'm curious if you've sort of been taking inspiration from from there as well. Mm, yeah, I mean, uh, I'm not an expert in evolutionary methods. Uh, clearly, they have influenced my thinking because, well, uh, natural uh, selection and evolution is something that should be in the background of every scientist. And uh, and I, I, I saw uh, uh, from the outside the, the work that happened with uh, genetic algorithms and then, uh, you know, uh, all of that. But... Um, so first of all, if you only use mutations, it's really it's a really dumb search. It's a local search, uh, and it, it suffers from some of the same issues. By the way, that you have with uh, MCMC method, Monte Carlo markup chain methods, which you do a lot of small local changes. Because if you did a big change, it will probably you know lead to nowhere, like something bad. And so you, you can only do like small changes to hope that it still works. That you still you might get something better. Um, and um, when uh, so the thing that's really interesting about evolutionary methods uh, is not the mutations, uh, it's it's the crossover, and because it, it allows a kind of uh, generalization at a distance. Like you you take two things that worked well and and you combine them, um, but it, it's done in a way that I think is is not nearly as powerful as what you could do with machine learning where it, you can have all kinds of powerful forms of generalization. So the reason why GFlowNets and uh, potentially other methods that are related to variational methods in, in, in machine learning um, can do better than MCMC is because in order to guess what good choices, good configurations might be, um, you're not limited to these local moves. You can use the power of generalization. So what does that mean? If you've seen uh, a few configurations that worked well, you might be able to find a pattern so that you can guess something as far away but follows that pattern would be a good answer. Right. And, and that's really what allows uh, uh, to do potentially exponentially better than, than things like just a uh, mutation-based evolutionary methods or, or MCMC methods. Mm, right. The GFlowNets idea also seems to be something like a very general framework. I know you had a very recent paper, I think just a little over a week ago, perhaps. I was also looking at different types of generative models and then uh, sort of articulating them as like specific versions of, of what a GFlowNet is more broadly, which was interesting. Yeah, the, the, the whole the whole spe the whole spectrum of unsupervised learning and generative models is quite interesting as a space. Uh, there are many connections between different methods. And it turns out GFlowNets um, 
has flavors and you know uh, as kind of special cases many of existing methods but also brings its own flavor and the flavor is very much related to uh, the inspiration from you know high level cognition in other words we build these um, data structures in our mind that that explain what we're seeing or maybe constitute plans and uh, so it has this like discrete sequential aspect of system two uh, which um, it, you don't typically find in other unsupervised uh, joint of models if you if you have time for one more question on on this topic there was something really interesting you said in another interview um, discussing the consciousness prior and GFLONETs in which you um, stated that you felt Cartesian dualism was an illusion. And I know you pose this as a question for David Chalmers. If I'd seen that interview before speaking to him, I would have tried to ask him about it as well. But just turning that question back to you, could you expand a little bit on just your your thoughts on that dualist theory of consciousness? Right. Um, so Descartes, had the intuition that within us, we had these really two different things, the body and the mind. And actually we all, I mean, most of us get that, get that impression. And I think it's also behind a lot of the uh, mental pictures that are associated with uh, most religions and um, superstitions and, and you, know, uh, you know, supernatural things that our brain tends to make up quite easily. Now, the biological reality, of course, you know, Descartes didn't know. He, this is way, you know, before uh, neuroscience uh, matured as it is today. Uh, the reality of biology is there is no such thing as that separation. Uh, you know, we have this where, I mean, at, to, to the extent that what we know, of course, because there's still a lot we don't know, but the, the consensus is uh, there, there, there is no such separation, of course. Um, but we still have to explain why we have that feeling that there is something special about being me and um, that I control things. So that's like the... Um, uh, the, the, the free will illusion, maybe, um, and uh, and that there's a difference between um, what may be going on in our brain that makes us do things and the uh, conscious perception we have, uh, subjective aspects of this of this that we can report sometimes verbally, but we can't completely explain with words. Um, and so what I like is the stance from people like Dan Dennett, uh, who's a philosopher of consciousness, um, but also people like neuroscientists like Michael Graziano, who are asking more the question of you know, what is going on physically in our brain that gives us that impression that there is this separation between the me that controls, the me that perceives, and what is going on you know, uh, more like at a lower level, this this mind-body separation. And uh, and Graziano has some nice theories about this, uh, which I find compelling. Um, but of course, we need a lot more investigation. 
but that's the scientific way to 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 deal with this which is uh not just take for granted that because we feel that there is that separation that it exists it's just this is what how we feel but it doesn't mean it's the reality we may feel that you know there is god that's helping us out there it doesn't mean it's true right mm -hmm. it's the same thing yeah there there are a lot of interesting ideas there and i guess to the dualism idea even before looking at today's science i think there's a pretty interesting objection directly to descartes from the princess elizabeth where she's like well you have a body that that is extended a brain that is not extended how can there be a causal arrow from brain to body, which I think was a pretty early and still somewhat salient objection that I don't think Descartes ever totally responded to. And with the whole free will illusion too, I think that um, there are some later ideas from Kant where he's like, well, you can't exactly have free will, but the, the mind cognition almost has to imagine that it has free will in order to act in the world, which is really interesting. I think just as a, as a, as a different frame of, of the take, I suppose. Well, free will also has a social role. Right. So if we think of ourselves as machines, even stochastic machines, then the notion of uh, social responsibility, like even legal responsibility, uh, seems weird because people just, you know, <laughs> the machine does what it does. Um, but, but if we think of us as agents, which is, of course, a, a kind of illusion, because we're not free will agents. Well, we just follow our policy, which may be stochastic, but still it's just a policy. That's a mechanical mechanical thing. If if we um, if we didn't have this notion of free will, it would be strange to blame someone who's made something bad. But now here's the thing. We are humans, or you know, even animals, and we can learn. And then it makes sense to to blame somebody and 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 to, you know, uh, maybe punish them besides the fact that we want to protect society, but, you know, just because that will teach them and others that, you know, these are things you shouldn't do. So with the illusion that this person could have acted differently, which of course is wrong, they, they acted as they, you know, they, they had to, but, but that illusion is useful for what we call credit assignments in machine learning, because it, it helps provide a, a signal. It's, it's there's like actually a causal counterfactual here, which is, if you had acted differently, things would have been better. And, and so now I can use this in order to change my policy. So in the future, I will not do it. Or someone else could use that as an example to avoid doing that mistake. Right, right. The, the determinism and, and blame assignment question is really interesting. There's a very interesting paper, um, Determinism al Dente, which sort of tries to toe the line between maintaining a fairly hard determinist stance, but then also reserving room for actually blaming people, um, which I which I thought was very interesting. It's not just it's, it, it, it's not just a question of determinism because we are probably stochastic machines as well, right? Right. Um, uh, and and you know and, and there are like technical reasons why we are, I think, but but it doesn't change the the bottom line. Even if it's a stochastic machine, it still follows some, you know, causal process, and you can't like it doesn't make sense to blame it except if you think, oh, this could be useful information uh, in order to change the the policy so that in the future you wouldn't do those mistakes. So now free will, like this illusion of free will, is useful. Like the fact that I think I could have done differently, which is wrong. 
may be a useful signal for me. Yeah, it's it's a very useful signal. And to what you said about the stochastic side of things, I suppose there's this is sort of this sort of has to do with why when people will make arguments like, oh, quantum mechanics exists, therefore free will. That doesn't it doesn't totally work like that. No, but free will those... is not randomness. It's not about random choices. Exactly. Uh, well, it's not clear what free will is, but it's something we have in our mind, really. And uh, it's like the dualism. It's something that we have in our mind that's maybe a useful illusion to some extent or a side effect of something useful. Um, but we need to, instead of taking it for granted and then trying to see where we go from there, we need to study it as a phenomenon. Like, why do we think this way? Why do we have this impression? In what's, you know, why does it make sense? How does it arise? How does it serve us or hurt us? Yeah, yeah. A lot of a lot of these impressions are are certainly adaptive, just in terms of our action as like beings on our own. But then also, as you've said multiple times, socially, I think there is a a much deeper rabbit hole we could go into on this. But perhaps I I just like to pivot towards a last set of questions if there's time. Um, and this is more kind of on some personal perspectives on just you as a researcher and the work you've done. My first is, there's a, a very good talk you've probably um, read by Richard Hamming, you and your research, and he had a lot of interesting takes here, but one particular quotation um, that he says is, when you're famous, it is hard to work on hard problems. And looking at your work, this is not a problem I perceive you as having, but I'm just curious how how those words strike you in terms of his perspective on he has a lot to say about people who have won Nobel Prizes and sort of what happens after that. And so I'm sort yes, of curious I, how you in that position look on those words. Uh, the best is to not pay attention to all that uh, fame and uh, recognition too much so that you can be as free as possible in, in, in doing what you think is right, which means taking risks, making mistakes, and... Um, and following your scientific instinct, just like you would do, have done before. Um, so that requires exercise and humility, which may be difficult if you receive a lot of these marks of recognition, but I think it's essential. Humility is also important for another reason, which is, you know, as a scientist, it's very important not to trust your intuition completely. It's good to follow your intuition, but you should also be aware that it could be wrong. And if you're not... Uh, humble enough, you could like fool yourself, and um, that's not good. <laughs> <laughs> I suppose so. Yeah, there's again, again the the epistemic humility, and I think the Bayesian posture strikes again. My last question, I guess, is uh, a little bit of a different take. So, having read a bit about your background, I saw that you have a very interesting family background. Your father being a pharmacist who wrote theater pieces, ran a theatrical troupe, and then your mother was also an artist. Has art played a significant role in your own life? And I'm curious how their backgrounds impacted you as a person and if you felt they've impacted you as a researcher. They have impacted me to this um, in the sense that they, my parents gave me a lot of freedom of being whatever I wanted and exploring and um and, and and not being feeling that I was uh, blocked in in some 
constraints and rules that most children feel maybe sometimes in their family. Um, because art is also like science about exploration. It's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a wilder kind of exploration where things are even less constrained than in science because you don't need to be fully coherent. And um, yeah, so that's, that's influenced me quite a bit. It, all, it, it also related to this, it has gives me, given me respect for people who think differently from me because in art, of course, there are many art forms and different ways of doing things and every artist is original and that doesn't mean, you know, it's not like you don't need to be right in, in art. Uh, just needs to be interesting. And I think in science, uh, of course, we need to seek truth. But as we said, there could be multiple uh, theories that uh, seem to fit the bill and it is important to explore them. Um, but we need that freedom. So yeah, this, this is the biggest gift I got. And of course, the gift of um, um, being interested by the intellect, <laughs> that's intelligence, but, but I mean more generally like uh abstractions and uh science and uh understanding what is one one my motto is like understand try to understand i want to understand why what's going on <laughs> yeah there there do certainly seem to be a lot of interesting overlaps with the way our our brains go about exploring and thinking about things between art and science. And it does seem like there are so many great scientists for whom art is also a really important part of their lives or, or inspires them in some way or another. Well, uh, Professor Bendio, I do want to thank you again for everything you've done for this field, for sitting down and talking with me today. It was, it was really an honor to have you on. My pleasure. Thanks for your questions. And that is a wrap, my friends. As I mentioned at the start of the episode, you can subscribe to The Gradient on Substack to receive not just this podcast, but also our articles and newsletters directly to your email. You can also visit us at thegradient.pub, where you'll find all of that, as well as more information about The Gradient and how you could even contribute if you're interested. And finally, if you enjoyed this episode, we would really appreciate your feedback. If you'd like to leave a comment or review, we'd love to know how we can make this series more interesting and informative to you. And with all that, I'll leave you until the next episode.